0: I did say that this would be the most important message in the history of preaching this week. I decided to postpone it. <coughs> my purposes are my own. I'm not going to announce it ahead of time. But it's coming. Sometimes. Indefinitely delayed and you will know. Uh, when it is delivered. Although I must admit, and you must be a little bit impressed as well, the recall in the Willis household is phenomenal. And so we want to thank Wendy for paying attention last week and telling Rick what to say when he got up for the announcement. So that was very, very helpful. Uh, this morning we are going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Last chapter in the work of the Chronicler, uh, it covers 1 and 2 Chronicles, this presents some vignettes of kings. Uh, it's just sort of a whirlwind account of uh, the last years of Jerusalem uh, before uh, God's people go off into exile. So Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-six. We're going to read the chapter together. This is the word of the Lord. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and made him king in Jerusalem in place of his father. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. The king of Egypt dethroned him in Jerusalem and imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. The king of Egypt made Eliakim, a brother of Jehoahaz, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Eliakim's brother, Jehoahaz, and carried him off to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. The other events of Jehoiakim's reign, the detestable things he did, and all that was found against him are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiakim, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon, together with articles of value from the temple of the Lord, and he made Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall to Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and his successors. Until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation had rested until the seventy years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. Well, Before we consider uh, this passage together, let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would uh, enable us to uh, benefit from your word. This is your holy and spoken word, uh, inerrant and infallible. And we ask, Lord, that we will uh, gladly submit under its authority uh, this morning. I pray that you will enable us to turn away from our own unfaithfulness or sin, whatever that may be in our lives. I pray that you will give us soft hearts rather than hard hearts. Help us to recognize your truth and help us to align ourselves uh, by it and according to it. Lord, we would ask that this morning uh, you would bless us richly so we can bless your name. I pray for everyone in this building, whether they're with the in the nursery or the children's church or here in this room. I pray that your spirit will be powerfully present. I pray that your spirit will lead and guide us and fill us. And Lord, on this long weekend where... Uh, We do know there are many who are away. We we think of those whom we love and we pray for them. Uh, We ask that you will be with them, uh, whatever they are doing. Uh, Lord, whether they're visiting uh, cities or or parks or wherever they are, just be with them, uh, keep them safe, uh, restore them to us, and enable us to grow in fellowship and love for one another. Make us holy. Make us pleasing and honoring to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this chapter obviously comes at the end of the work that the chronicler is doing. In 1 and first and second Kings and first and Second Chronicles, they're written for slightly different purposes, as you can tell if you read the books carefully. So first and second kings will deal with both the northern 10 tribes, remembering that after Solomon's reign, the kingdom is split. Israel is split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So under the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, the ten northern tribes split from Judah and the capital city, Jerusalem, in the south. First and Second Kings follows the reign in Israel, the north, and in Judah, the south. And the, the author of 1 and 2 Kings is demonstrating again and again and again and again how the wickedness... Of the people led to the destruction of the north by the Assyrians in 721-722 BC, and how the eventual sort of downward spiral in the south led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587-586 BC by the Babylonians. Ultimately, now, First and Second Chronicles doesn't deal with the northern tribes. You've, you've noticed that if you've if you've read it carefully, except when the north is somehow bound up with the events in the south. The chronicler really only cares about Jerusalem and Judah. And he glosses over a little bit of the wicked things that certain kings did. In fact, what he's trying to do is he's trying to show the people who are coming back from captivity in Babylon, listen, we were unfaithful, and so we reaped what we sowed. But... If we are not unfaithful, then we will be blessed. God will take care of us. God will protect us. It wasn't a failure of the Lord God that led us into captivity. It was our own moral, spiritual failure. It was our unfaithfulness. So the chronicler is trying to show unfaithful and unfaithfulness is actually the major vocabulary word that runs through all of his work when he's talking about sin and rebellion. Saul dies because he was unfaithful. Jerusalem is destroyed because the people were unfaithful. That word unfaithful or unfaithfulness runs through the book over and over and over again. It's a great explanatory category for why God is punishing the people. It's their failure. But the book ends with an accent of hope. And so the idea is you're going to come back and if you are just faithful to a faithful God, then you will be blessed. It's trying to give hope to the returning exiles. But it's also warning them, if you persist in unfaithfulness, what do you think is going to happen again? Now, throughout all the reigns of the kings that you get in this book, those are the themes that are running. You hit this last chapter, and the author accelerates his treatment of the kings. So that a couple of minutes, they just get a few lines. Because the whole idea is that at this point, he's trying to show, even with the rapidity of the speed in which he writes, he's trying to draw you through the narrative showing that things the wheels have come off and, and they're hurtling towards destruction and they're picking up speed going downhill. Even the literary quality of this chapter is supposed to drive you forward. There's no hope. So you're heading towards a brick wall and there are no brakes and the car is accelerating. That's what's going on here. Jehoahaz reigns for three months. During his three-month reign, Egypt, Pharaoh Niko, comes in and reduces Judah to a vassal state. Now this is frightening because Egypt isn't even the superpower of the day. They're a second-rate power. Uh, Babylon is the superpower. Egypt is a second-rate power, and Egypt dominates Judah. That's really bad news. And so now this king reigns for three months. He's deported to Egypt. Egypt becomes the, the, the sort of the, the overall the suzerain state, and, and Judah's the vassal state. And Nico, the Pharaoh, chooses who's going to be king of Judah. That's bad news. You don't want the pharaoh of Egypt choosing your king if you live in Judah. This king is named Jehoiakim. He reigns for 11 years. And we're told he did, in verse 5, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So now Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon attacks. So this puppet king from Egypt is now attacked by Babylon. And the Babylonians take care of him. They, they put him in bronze shackles. They take him to Babylon. But they also, verse 7, this is more frightening. If, if you're thinking covenantally in terms of blessings and curses, Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. God is not only allowing Judah to suffer politically, He's also beginning to dismantle them religiously. The temple is God's house. As we work through some of the prophets when we get there in our our Bible reading program, we'll see that one of the flagrant sins in the land is that the priests are engaged in pagan idolatry in the temple of God. And so God is no longer protecting the temple. He, the place that was his house, the place where he said, I will put my name forever. He is, he, in, his, in Ezekiel, we see he, actually, he withdraws his glory precisely so that the, the Babylonians can come in and the temple can be destroyed. There's nothing sacred about the, about the structure. Well, the only sacred thing about the structure was when God moved in. Other than that, it was, it was just a bunch of bricks. It's just a bunch of stone. There's absolutely nothing of significance to the physical temple at all. It was just a building. Unless the Lord of hosts took up his residence inside. That cubic holy of holies was not the holy of holies without the presence of the Lord. It's the Lord who sanctified it. In the same way that there was nothing holy but that ground where there was a burning bush, except that God made it holy. And so now you're beginning to see these are, these are shots across the bow. This is, this is God clearly showing his people that he is withdrawing his protection from them. To the south, Egypt. Off to the north, Babylon. Judah and Jerusalem stuck in the middle with no power at all, politically, militarily, economically, or now spiritually and religiously. If there was ever a time for people to repent and recognize that the words of the prophets were true, it was now. However, Jehoiakim becomes king, and he reigns for three months and ten days. Not a lot of stability. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He reigns for the winter. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sends for him and brings him to Babylon too. Together with articles of value from the temple of the Lord. And he made Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. So again, you have what? You've just had this terrible disaster where the king has been taken away and the Babylonians have plundered articles from the temple of the Lord. You have a new king. And he, rather than recognizing sort of what's going on, he's just as evil as his predecessors. So he lasts three months, and, and God sends him to, to Babylon, too, with more things out of the temple. This is a second shot across the bow. God's saying, Listen, you've you, you got to figure this out. Don't you see what's going on here in your life? A second king in three months deported to Babylon, more things out of the temple. You need to repent. Zedekiah, we're told, reigns for 11 years. So you'll, you'll notice that pattern too then in this text. Jehoahaz reigns for three months. Jehoiakim reigns for 11 years. Jehoiakim reigns for three months. Zedekiah reigns for 11 years. There's a symmetry here in what God's doing. This is what we're told about him. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Categorically. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. And this is, in some ways, the big one. Because he doesn't care about God, he doesn't listen to God's word. Because he doesn't care about the Lord, he rejects the Lord's prophet. But to reject the Lord's prophet, to reject the Lord's word, is to reject God Himself. If we expose ourselves to the truth of the Word of God and turn away, it's because of hard hearts and arrogance. To submit to the Word of God is to be marked with humility. He did not humble Himself before Jeremiah. After all, He's the King! Who is this prophet? You know, who's this person who comes and and speaks to me in the name of the Lord? Well, Jeremiah is the one who actually delivers the oracles of God. And the king won't submit to them. Now, because of this, and if you read through some of the other history books and some of the prophets, you get the political intrigue that goes into this. Zedekiah rejects the Lord and then rejects Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is really, really. The only word that you can actually use for this is stupid. Uh, this is just utterly disastrous. It's sort of like, you know, in, in Canada. It, it was a little bit different. But by analogy, let, let's just say here in Canada, we decided you know, that God was going to put a special protection over us. And we decided, you know what? Thanks, thanks God, but no thanks. We don't want to do what you want. We don't want your word. We don't want your prophecy. We don't want your truth. We don't need your protection. We'll, go, we'll, we'll do it on our own. And then we turn around and declare all-out war on the United States. Now, as much as we would like to think that our, our maple syrup resources and all the things that we have in our military would allow us to defeat the states in, in a straight-up battle, it's not likely that, given our military and their military, we're going to win that fight. Zedekiah rejects God, then basically turns around you know, with, with his pea shooter, and says to the guy with the nuclear arsenal, let's go to war. See, how can he even be that foolish? Actually, rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar is nothing compared to the folly of rebelling against God. Nothing. It's symptomatic of his foolishness. It, it's a lesser folly, actually. He brought up... So the Lord is angry. uh, The the Lord decides... or Sorry, we'll get to that in just a little bit. He became stiff-necked. He hardened his heart. He would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 14. All the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following the detestable practices of the nations around them, defiling the temple of the Lord. So you're completely rejecting God. You're completely rejecting the covenant. You're rejecting, you know, the the, the king of the superpower who has already deposed two kings in front of you and started carting off things from the temple of the Lord. Everyone is growing in unfaithfulness. Now, when you're told they follow the detestable practices of the nations and they're defying the temple of the Lord, this is to set off absolute alarm bells if you have any understanding of the old covenant law. Why did God bring Israel into the promised land? Why did He bring them into Canaan? Partly to, because to fulfill the blessing to Abraham, but also because of the wickedness of the nations that were there. And what was the tremendous warning that God gave His people? That don't think I'm bringing you in because you're so wonderful. In fact, if you end up acting like the nations who are there now, the same thing that I'm doing to them, I'm going to do to you. I'm driving them out, not because you're righteous, but because they're wicked. If you you act that wickedly too, I'm going to drive you out. The land is going to vomit you out the way it vomits them out. And so when you read that Israel is acting just like the nations around them, doing the same detestable things, and you remember the covenant that God has with Israel, you know, they're either going to repent, or this is the end, They are going to experience the great climactic covenant curse of being driven out of the land and being treated just like the pagan nations around them because that's what they are. They are the covenant people of God and they're a pagan nation at the same time. So what happens? Verse 15. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again. Because he had no because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. You ever wonder why the prophets constitute such a large section in the Bible? You think starting from Isaiah, I think, all the way to Malachi, that's a lot of pages. That's a lot of chapters. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. Uh, we divide Psalms into more chapters, but there, there are more words in Jeremiah than in any other biblical book, including Psalms. So this is an enormous amount of material. Well, why? Why all of that? It's because God was sending his, his warning again and again and again and again so that no one can possibly say, God, you, you, you only said it once. We weren't sure you were serious. No, for centuries, God sent his messengers over and over again, calling the people back to the covenant law. In fact, the prophets in the first instance aren't mainly people who are predicting the future. You, know, you read the prophets, and you, you can read through a fair bit of the prophets without some sort of great future prediction of faraway events. More, more often, what the prophets are doing is they're saying, Look, come back to the covenant. God's already told you what he's going to do if you don't repent. They're just enforcing the covenant law. And, and so, yes, sometimes God gives them special insight into, into who is going to come and destroy the people. But everyone should have known what was going to happen if they just applied the word of God properly. He sent the messengers again and again. But, verse 16, they mocked God's messengers and in doing so mocked God. They despised his words. All these rough synonyms being piled up. They mocked God's messengers, despised his words scoffed at his prophets for centuries until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. You you scoff against God and reject his word long enough and, and, and you might just hit a point of no return where the Lord's anger, which has been slowly building as he waits patiently for repentance, gets to a place where there is no remedy but for him to pour it out. And that's where these people are. Just like God waited patiently for centuries for the people in Canaan to repent, he has waited for centuries for his people in the promised land to repent, and they're growing more and more wicked until the point comes where there is no remedy at all. So then God he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. The, he, he, the superpower of the day does not move unilaterally. God is in control. And you see the exact same thing at the birth of Jesus. One of the things that is so critical to understand is that when Jesus is born and there's that great census through the Roman world, you know that, that God decreed that census, not Caesar. Because God was going to have his his Messiah born in in fulfillment of prophecy in the town where he wanted him to be born. And and so for for the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, there was going to be a census to get him there. God decreed that. God God moves in the great international events, even in ways that we don't understand. But, But it's all according to God's plan. God sends the king of the Babylonians. Interesting that. Zedekiah rejects God and rejects Babylon. God says, fine, I'll use Babylon then. Babylon will be the tool of my justice. The Babylonians come in and they destroy all of the wicked people. There's destruction and fire and sword. He carried to Babylon all of the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple. That, that beautiful temple that Solomon built, the, the, the home of the name of the Lord, burned down like a common building. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. Cities relied on exterior walls for protection. So now Jerusalem is defenseless and gutted. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. The entire city is ruined. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. All this was to complete or to fulfill what the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. What this is is the end of the covenant. This is the end of the story. God had told his people, clearly in the law and for centuries through his prophets, that if they persisted in unfaithfulness, then they would go into exile, and exile was the climactic covenant curse. It was the end. It was saying, you have broken the covenant so thoroughly that it's done. It's over. The covenant's broken. You wrecked it. And there's absolutely no hope at all. You die, or you're a slave. This is going back into Egypt before Exodus. Before the Exodus. You're back in slavery. But it's worse than that. This is going back all the way into pre-Genesis 12. Here are Abraham... Abraham was a pagan idolater who was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans is simply another term for Babylon. What you have now is God saying to the people, I am taking you all the way back to where you began. After all of these centuries, after, after calling Abraham, out of blessing him, out of giving promises and promises and promises, after the Exodus, after Sinai, after the law, after the promised land conquest, after David, after the temple, after Solomon, after Isaiah, after Hosea, after all of this... You're right back to square one, but worse, because the people that I called Abraham out of didn't have all of these blessings that you've thrown away. You're going back to square one, but worse, because you have a legacy of covenant, you have revelation, I have redeemed you, and you've thrown it all away, and you're going back to where I called you out of, you are going back into slavery in Babylon. It's like I never called Abraham in the first place. Because you are unfaithful in spite of all that I have done for you and your families for all these long, long centuries. The covenant's done. God's mission to reach the world has failed. That's what this text is saying. Because God's mission to reach the world was that he was going to bless all nations through Abraham's seed. And that has reached the absolute cul-de-sac dead end of unfaithfulness amongst his people. And there is no remedy. Abraham's seed has failed. And the covenant is broken. That is precisely how you're supposed to understand the text. So that when you read verse 22 and 23, you're almost not convinced that you read it properly. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. That wasn't supposed to happen. That wasn't part of covenant law. Covenant law was you break this covenant and it's over. You go into exile and we're done. You, you ruin things with your wickedness and you will reap what you sow. This appendix in verse 22 and 23, this is not law. This is grace. This this is not old covenant. This is new covenant. This is God saying, you know what? You have broken the covenant and it's over. But I am still going to bless the nations through you. And that's going to require changing your hearts. That's going to require a new covenant work. That's going to require my Holy Spirit in a new and a fresh way. There's going to have to be something new that happens here, because we have proven categorically to all of the world, Israel, that you are not able to be my servant and blessing. You are not able to accomplish my mission to the nations. You cannot do it. In fact, you end up disgracing my name. You end up driving me from my house. You end up ruining everything. Ending up just like a pagan nation. You'll go back into paganism if that's what you want. You'll be there for 70 years. But I'm going to bring out a new generation. In the same way that the generation that God brought out of Egypt, they all died in the wilderness because of their rebellion after redemption. But God said, okay, I'll wait. There's another generation I'm bringing in. Here God says, you're going into exile and you will die in Babylon, but I'll bring your children out. Because I will not give up on my plans for the world. His plans aren't based on law. His plans are based on grace. This is one of the most amazing resolutions in Old Testament history that points you to the grace of God. We do not bless the world because of our performance. God blesses the world through us and in spite of us because of His grace. This is one of those texts that, 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 that drive you to Jesus. Because if anyone could bless the world, it was Israel with all of their advantages with the covenant, with the law, with everything God did for them, if they couldn't do it, what group could? No one! Babylonians wouldn't have done a better job. The Egyptians wouldn't have done a better job. The Philistines wouldn't have done a better job. Israel was as good as they got. It was the cream of the crop. God poured out every blessing into them, and they still failed. No, there needed to be, as Isaiah could see, a servant of the Lord who one day came and lived. His life perfectly to honor God. Then, you know, one of the lenses through which the New Testament looks at the death of Christ, the servant of the Lord, is this. When Jesus died on the cross, he experienced the ultimate exile. It's just one of the lenses, one of the theological lenses that the New Testament gives you a nuance. He takes upon Himself the covenant curse of being cut off from the land. He's cut off from the people. He's driven out of the city of Jerusalem and dies as an exile beyond, outside of the holy place. He dies under the wrath of God. Cursed as everyone hung on a tree. Jesus is the embodiment of all that Israel was supposed to be in terms of service and obedience and light and love. But then he took upon himself the ultimate covenant curse of exile, slavery, and death. And just like here where there's a hint of this, just just here, you have to understand, again, exile was the end. Exile was death. And yet, somehow in God's grace, even after exilic death, there is life. God's not done. After the death of Jesus, after the exile of Jesus and death, there's life, there's resurrection life. This, this is the text which is driving you to the to resurrection. It's showing you death, but there's life after death. The, our God is a God who redeems from the dead. Our God is the one who says the covenant is broken, the curse is poured out, but I am not done as unfaithful as you have been. I am a faithful God. I am a God of grace, and my grace and love transcends your law and, uh, law and sin. On the basis of law, you are all damned on the basis of grace, I will take that damnation upon myself, bear your curse, and then give you resurrection life. That's what God does. It's hard to imagine a God like that. It's hard to imagine a grace that rich and free. A God who's that patient. And yet, that's the God... That we serve. Yeah, I don't know, maybe in a metaphorical sense, maybe some of you today kind of feel like you're, you're in exile. Maybe some of you feel like your life is surrounded by fire and sword and chaos and death and destruction. And maybe it is. Maybe, maybe today, your, your life is in shambles. Maybe, maybe today, you don't have any hope for the future. Just one of the things this text does is it shows you No matter how bad things are in your life, there is a God of grace who receives those who turn to him. That there is light in the darkness if you will see it and desire it. That no one, no set of circumstances, no person, no nation is ever beyond the sovereign grace of a sovereign God who raises up a Persian pagan to send his people home. Help can come from some surprising sources when you have a God as great as our God. And so don't give up hope. Don't don't fall into despair. There is a God of absolute grace and sometimes... Sometimes He comes in, but only when it seems like it's already too late and nothing can be done. Sometimes our, our strength and hope and patience gives out. We can even fall into despair and doubt God. But God's still there. God's still light. God's still sovereign. God's still love. And if you find yourself sort of existentially emotionally, psychologically, in a place of exile, don't doubt there's a delivering God. It's not the last word just yet. There's still hope. Uh, As we celebrate communion, we are going to be reminding ourselves, uh, this is what our Lord did. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took our exile upon himself, was cut off from the land of the living and then was raised to life. And that's our state too. In in Christ's death, we die. In Christ's death, vicariously, our sin in exile is atoned for and paid for. United with him in his exile, we are also united with him in his resurrection. This shows us God's decree. Sin must be punished, but there's everlasting life for all of those whose faith is in the servant of the Lord. Now, I have, um, again, this, this weekend, some of our deacons are away, and so I've asked uh, some different folk to come and to, to help uh, distribute these elements, and so I'm going to ask them to come uh, forward now. And I'm going to ask, while we just prepare this uh, to celebrate communion together, take a moment to pray individually. I just ask the Lord to to make this a meaningful time as we uh, think about Jesus Christ and remember our Lord and Savior.